Neuropodcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. In these bonus episodes of the podcast, we discuss clinical cases with consultant neurologist Dr. Rhys Davies. These discussions primarily focus on the clinico-anatomical correlation of neurological symptoms. We hope you enjoy listening. So Mrs. Jones is aged 55. Uh, she presents to, to you after last night she developed a right-sided headache and neck pain, which came on fairly suddenly. This morning, she noticed weakness of her left arm and difficulty using her left hand while she was making breakfast. This symptom lasted for 10 minutes. So on examination, you note that she has a constricted right pupil and slight drooping of the right eyelid, but no other signs and there's no weakness in the in the left hand when you examine. So I'd like to start just by uh, thinking about uh, the neural pathways involved in uh, motor control of the body, and in particular, the neural pathways involved in controlling movements in the left arm. So I think the best way to answer this question is to go at it in the wrong direction. So obviously the control of a body part is instigated in the brain, but I think it's quite a useful exercise to go in the opposite direction. So, first of all, pain or abnormality in, in any tissue type could cause some difficulty of movement. Obviously, uh, the most typical example of that perhaps would be a bone fracture. But let's restrict ourselves to the neurosensory system uh, and... Uh, the bit of that system, of course, at the outside end is the muscle tissue. So, you, so uh, you need intact muscle tissue, and then the next step in would be the neuromuscular junction. And the neuromuscular junction is obviously the outer tip of the peripheral nerve structure. So, we're talking about the axon of a named peripheral nerve. If we think about the forearm, then maybe brachioradialis muscle, which is, is one of the, the muscles uh, contributing to movement at the, at the, at the wrist. And, and the peripheral nerve, in that case, uh, would be the radial nerve. The radial nerve uh, itself comes off uh, one of the uh, outflow branches of the brachial plexus. So that's the plexus. And then the brachial plexus, we won't go through its various divisions and cords and trunks and the like um, but but the, the the bit that forms the brachial plexus is the is the nerve roots uh, so uh, if we're talking about the the radial nerve it gets contributions from several of the nerve roots and and the nerve roots in total contributing to the brachial plexus of course are those from c5 to t1 and if we're talking about brachioradialis, the main root supplying that muscle would be the C6 root. So then we have the nerve roots, and these ones are just forming the brachial plexus, just uh, lateral to the spinal column. Um, but to get there, they have to travel in the intervertebral foramina, the exit foramina. And before they get to the foramina, um, they're bathed in CSF within the meninges. And then after that, they they sort of are in the spinal cord. And so there's a little bit of white matter between the central grey of the cord and the, and the nerve root after it's left 
the central nervous system, uh, and that's sometimes called the fascicle. Uh, and then the axon itself, uh, if we're going back to front, we can say that it terminates, but of course it basically arises from the motor neuron cell body in the central grey of the spinal cord. And as you may remember, the, the, the central grey matter of the cord has a butterfly shape or an H shape, uh, and the, the cells of the uh, motor system are in the anterior or ventral part of the butterfly or the H. At that point, something exciting happens in the pathway. It's the synapse, okay? And the synapse is obviously the link between this neuron that we're talking about, which is the lower motor neuron in clinical syndrome terms. And then the, the other side of the synapse is the, is the terminal of the upper motor neuron, as it's called. Um, and that obviously uh, has come to get to the anterior horn from the corticospinal tract. Um, and I think it's useful at this point to think about these words contralateral, ipsilateral. And within the spinal cord, the corticospinal tract, the lateral corticospinal tract, uh, is actually ipsilateral. Okay, so if you get a lesion of the corticospinal tract within the spinal cord, the symptoms will be ipsilesional. So go up the rest of the spinal cord um, and we get to the medulla and the medulla is where the decussation happens and sometimes called the decussation of the pyramids because the corticospinal tracts um, are prominent like little pyramids um, at the front of the medulla which is the lowest bit of the brainstem um, and that's where the decussation happens. So above the medulla the corticospinal tract is on the opposite side, so that would be in the pons, and then above the pons it would be in the midbrain, uh, which is uh, the bit of the brain that looks a bit like Mickey Mouse in cross-section, and the ears of Mickey Mouse are the cerebral peduncles, um, and these actually um, are Mickey Mouse standing on his head, because that's the anterior uh, rather than the, uh, the posterior part of, of the midbrain, and then you sort of weave through the diencephalon and the basal ganglia as a structure called the white matter internal capsule and then you finally reach the primary motor cortex in the pre-central gyrus and there you have the pyramidal motor neurons uh, in the primary motor cortex and I think it's worth remembering that all of the CNS motor structures involved uh, that we've discussed uh, are anterior so the pre-motor the pre-central gyrus is motor cortex the post-central is sensory the cerebral peduncles with the motor fibers that are anterior in the midbrain um, as are the pyramids in the medulla and of course the anterior horn of the gray matter is the anterior part uh, in the spinal cord great so obviously Hearing the patient has left arm weakness as a neurologist, those are the, the considerations of where the site of the problem could be, could be any, anywhere any of the above. along those. And especially in a case like this, where perhaps the patient's symptoms have resolved by the time you're actually seeing them, you have to consider all of those. So then we think about the sorts of pathology that could affect nerves lasting for, a, I think it was 10 minutes, she said, yeah. she had the weakness. Yeah, so, so there's, a, there's a whole range of very rare uh, 
diseases and conditions that cause intermittent symptoms and obviously that's not our business here so so what we should do i think is is consider the main neurological causes of intermittent symptoms so uh inflammation in the body it comes and goes as as people will know uh in their daily lives you know uh inflammation of the skin or um of the nasal membranes in hay fever that comes and goes and and you can get inflammation in the nervous system but that would usually occur over a much longer period than 10 minutes so so multiple sclerosis is an inflammatory mm. disease um, and that shouldn't uh really uh occur in episodes lasting any shorter than 24 hours let alone 10 minutes the other things would be lack of oxygen to the brain, so blockage of a blood supply or, or sort of low blood pressure, a sort of fainting episode. Um, and I think that's quite plausible in this case. And then a couple of sort of electrochemical things that, that perhaps uh, an early stage medical student might not think about. The more obvious uh, is epilepsy. So epilepsy attacks when they occur repeatedly, although you can get very long uh, epilepsy attacks that we call status epilepticus usually they're very brief and and epilepsy attacks would typically last you know a minute or so rather than 10 minutes and then the real funny one that you won't as a medical student know about unless you've experienced it is 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 migraine headache and migraine aura the sort of sensory or sensory motor occasionally symptoms that that can occur very briefly but in this case this period of symptoms of 10 minutes or so sounds as though it's a blood supply related problem I think. Okay and we'll um, I guess we'll come back to that a little bit at the, at the end of the case but I just want to move on now to um, the uh, the clinical examination uh, that we've documented down so uh, we mentioned that the right pupil appeared constricted and with slight drooping of the right eyelid. Now the pupils have uh, a nerve supply and there's two types of nerve that supply the muscles of the pupil and the eyelid. Are you able just to explain about the two okay. types of nerve? Yeah. Um, so, so the pupil uh, contains smooth muscle, so smooth muscle uh, supplied by the autonomic nervous system. Uh, so there's the constrictor muscle and the dilator muscle. <clears throat> and the dilator muscle is supplied by the sympathetic system. I, I suppose if, if a person is, is doughy-eyed with, with, with big pupils, that's a sympathetic sort of response. Um, and then the parasympathetic supply is the constrictor. So those are the two muscles of the pupil, uh, the circular and radial muscles, the sphincter and dilator pupillae, and they're supplied respectively uh, by the um, sympathetic and parasympathetic. So just to uh, reiterate, it's the constrictor that is supplied by the uh, parasympathetic and the dilator supplied by the sympathetic. The eyelid is a bit of a different story. So, so there's, a, there's perhaps one of the longest muscle names, but, but somehow one of the most memorable um, is levator palpebri superioris. So that's the muscle that opens your eyelids, 
course, there's the orbicularis oculi, which isn't really an eyelid muscle, and that's the one that closes the eyes. But leaving that aside, um, levator palpebrae superioris is a, is a striated skeletal muscle, and it's one of the uh, orbital muscles that's supplied by the ocular motor nerve. Um, so, so that's part of the voluntary motor system. But there happens also to be a small smooth muscle that's part of the eyelid musculature, and, and that's sometimes called the superior tarsal muscle, sometimes called the muscle of Muller, um, and that actually has its supply from the sympathetic nervous system. So, so those, uh, those are the two muscles of the eyelid, the, the uh, voluntary nervous system, striated levator palpebrae superioris, and the sympathetic supplied muscle of Muller uh, on the other side. So, so this patient had a constricted pupil and a droopy eyelid. And if we are trying to think of a, of a single explanation, a unifying explanation, as it were, for that, then it's likely, isn't it, that the sympathetic supply to the pupillary dilator and the sympathetic supply to the muscle of Muller uh, is disrupted. So, so that would point to an abnormality or a disruption of the sympathetic supply to the musculature of the orbit and the eye. Okay, and, and is, there a, is there a name of that combination of signs okay. or is there a syndrome? There, there is. So this is a kind of famous uh, name. It's called Horner's syndrome. Um, so, so when you get disruption to the sympathetic nerve supply uh, to the eye, um, it's called Horner's syndrome. And uh, when, when we do clinical neuroscience, we really like to match uh, the clinical features to what we know about the anatomy. And sometimes we use these eponyms, these people's names, to remind us. And Horner's is, 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 is a good one. Well, it's a good one and a bad one. It's a good one um, because the, the, the pathway is really long. So actually the pathway begins in the hypothalamus on the same side of the brain, and then it descends all the way down to the upper thoracic spinal cord. Uh, and that's the point at which the fibres, uh, the pathway, uh, come out of the central nervous system and they join... Uh, what's called the sympathetic chain uh, of ganglia, and that goes up um, to the superior cervical and stellate ganglia. And then the pathways do a funny thing. Uh, they, they join uh, the, the main artery to the, to the head, uh, the, uh, the carotid artery, and then they kind of follow its branches, including the op ophthalmic artery, to the, to the eye. So I think there's two points there. Um, one is that because that pathway is so long, you know, um, it, it involves the brain, it involves the spinal cord, it involves tissues um, near the tip of the lung, the lung apex, and then all those important structures in the neck going back up again. Um, that means that a Horner syndrome uh, can be produced by lots of different diseases. So it's a useful sign. Um, on the other hand, the, 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 in the same breath almost um, it doesn't tell you very precisely because un unless you do some kind of really complicated 
chemical tests on the eye, which which no one really does in clinical practice. Um, you, you you need to think about damage at all those sites. And just one final thought, I just the, the, the autonomic nervous system has two bits, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. Um, and the parasympathetic outflow is in the cranial nerve territory. So in order to do parasympathetic work in the rest of the body, the neural impulses have to travel down and, and they do so in the wandering nerve, the vagus nerve down from the head um, all the way to the to the abdomen. But the sympathetic uh, outflow is in the spinal cord, in the thoracic and lumbar spinal cord. And so that set of messages has to travel up um, and it does so in the sympathetic chain and with the carotid artery. So, so the, I guess the sympathetic pathway travels a long way to get back. It does. You know, to go back it into does. the brain. And, and now I suppose this kind of links in with uh, what you do as a neurologist generally, which is to try and localise... Uh, sites of pathology and we know Mrs Jones had described uh, 10 minutes where her left arm went weak and we've talked about where that could be a problem and the sorts of problems that it could be and I think yeah. you, you said it could be a, a, a blood flow problem Yeah. and you've talked about the pathway that would give you a horners on the right side mm. yeah. so are you able to link those two? Yeah so uh, this is a, a 55 year old lady we don't have any story that she has risk factors for typical uh, vascular disease, heart disease and and uh, hardening of the arteries and so on. Um, but it does sound as though um, she's had a, a, a blood vessel blockage, a stroke if you like, and it's very likely that's, that what's happened here is that she's been unlucky and she's suffered a tear in the lining of the right carotid artery and that, at that point, has damaged the sympathetic fibres within the wall of the right carotid artery. And that's what's given us this persistent sign of a right-sided horners. Um, but the other bit is that uh, because of that tear, there's been a local thrombosis as a sort of healing reaction. And sometimes when you have thrombosis, the the clotty clotty material sometimes drifts off and that's called an embolus and that could drift into one of the arteries on the right side of the brain it would be a branch of the middle cerebral artery in fact Um, and if that soft clotty material ended up in the artery that supplied the uh, the arm part of the primary motor cortex uh, then you could get ischemia, lack of oxygen, lack of blood in that bit of the brain, and that would be a transient ischemic attack. And it's very likely that this is yeah. what's happened in this lady. Excellent. So I think the main learning points from from our point of view for this case really were to highlight, first of all, the sort of neuroanatomical correlates of the, of motor weakness. Indeed. Uh, and uh, you've talked about the autonomic pathways and how they innovate the pupil and the eyelid. Mm-hmm. Are there any particular sort of key messages that you would give uh, the students listening uh, about these? Well, I think that as a, as a clinical neurologist primarily, uh, the, the bit of neuroanatomy that you come back to time and time again is this motor pathway. The fact that it decussates at the medulla specifically and the fact that the clinical features 
that go along with the weakness differ if the lesion is in the upper motor neuron, so between the primary motor cortex and uh, the axon terminals in the uh, spinal cord. On the one hand, that's an upper motor neuron uh, syndrome in that distribution, and then the alternative would be a lower motor neuron when damage is in that cell within the anterior horn and its axon and the various branches right out to the neuromuscular junction. So having a good idea about that pathway is as important as anything in the neurosensory system. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Look out for more podcast episodes coming out shortly.